uh, we are also praising God for school staying open this week. Amen? Oh. Wow, the kids aren't excited. I thought the parents might be. Uh, but we, we, are, uh, we are praising the Lord. Uh, we know that there was a, a lot going on there. We're, we're praising him for, uh, for the jobs of, our, of, our, of many of even our own people here, principals, staff, my dad's an, an aide at Redout Elementary, affecting so many people uh, for your sanity. What was I going to do with my children? Um, we thank Solid Rock for being willing to step up if they would have been needed um, to, to, house, uh, to have some kids over there. These things are complicated and messy, right? We're not here to make any kind of political statements, but if we've learned anything from this series and what we've seen this last week, our God is on the throne and will always be on the throne. Amen? Uh, we, we can trust that, and so we're praising him for that. Now, most of you probably don't notice, but during the service, um, there's this guy creeping around in the back behind you. Yeah, and uh, don't, don't look right now. It'll scare him away. And he's pointing a pencil at each of your heads. Now, don't worry, he's not like plotting your demise like an evil villain or anything like that. He's just taking attendance, I, I promise, that's all that's going on. We, we count, each week, we count um, how many people come to the service. Now, there could be good reasons to count, and there can be bad reasons to count, right? The good reason is we actually, we are a part of the Caris Fellowship, which is a family of churches that we're a part of, and we pay dues every year, and, and part of the dues is based on our attendance. So we have to report our attendance to know how much uh, we are paying to the fellowship, so that's a good reason for us. It's also a good reason because we are as a growing church. We had to go to two services last year to kind of to be able to see how is the growth happening, uh, how, how big are our children's classes, um, and here's a free plug. Come to the first service. There's a lot more room there. I preach way better in the first hour. It's heresy-free. Uh, it's also gluten-free, so come first hour, and, and you'll, be, you'll be good to go. Um, but we, uh, there are, So there are good reasons to count. There are also bad reasons to count, and I'm going to be honest with you. There are times when I assign my value and worth as a human to how many people we have coming to our service services on Sunday morning. I know that sounds crazy, but this is my form of pride to validate me and what I'm doing and my preaching and, and my job. And, and, and at the end of the day, like, what is that, right? I'm saying, I'm trying to say to God, look how awesome I am. Now, look how awesome we are as a church. It's pride, right? Watch out, Bible Chapel. Here we come, right? We're the largest church in Sultana, Alaska. Say it out loud. That's not that great. Okay, so we, we, or, or we could count for judgment, right? We're going through the list. Oh, I haven't seen the Hamiltons in a while. Interesting. They must not love Jesus anymore, right? We could, so there are, there are good reasons to count. There are bad reasons to count. And, and what we see in our lives so often is it is not as much about the what, but about the why. It's not inherently wrong to count. One, two, three. Lightning bolt. Like, there's nothing wrong with counting. But what's the heart motivation in it? And in our lives, there are two ultimate motivations, pride or humility. Pride says, look at me. Humility says, look at my God. What motivates our hearts? And we're going to see this. We're going to see David counting. And it's a little confusing, this text, as to what is actually going on in the story today. But what we're going to see is that ultimately, it's not about what he's doing, the counting. It's why he's doing it. What is his heart motivation? And I pray that we would also examine our heart motivations this morning as we walk through this text together. Now, we've had a couple of tough weeks, haven't we? Some of the, some of the topics we've been hitting on hit close to home in some tough spaces I was saying in some ways, it's, it's crazy. Today, 70,000 Israelites are going to die, and it almost feels like a breath of fresh air compared to what we've been going through this last month. But what we've been seeing, man, these topics are real, and the sin and brokenness in Israel's stories were real, and the sin and brokenness in our day and age are real. And we've been seeing the consequences of David's sin, what he did against Bathsheba and Uriah, 
and the fallout as four of his sons die, a civil war ensues. It's a bloodbath. But what we know from Scripture, sin kills and destroys. It doesn't mess around. But neither does our God. Our God is one that gives life and raises people from the dead. Amen? That's what we're here this morning to celebrate. Now, God in his grace, after David fleeing from Jerusalem, his son Absalom trying to take the throne, he graciously restores him to Jerusalem uh, back in his palace in 2 Samuel chapter 19. And where we're going to land the plane today in 2 Samuel 24 is we're going to see this story, again, of God dealing with sin, but also pointing us to the price that he paid to be able to save David, Israel, and us today. So we just start praying with me here. We, Lord, we just ask that you would teach us from your word. We ask that at the end of this, we may see you more clearly, that we may hear from you today, God, that you would point us to Jesus and cause us, our hearts, to delight in you and you alone. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We're going to see three things about our King David and and about our God in the story today. First of all, we're going to see a proud king and an angry God. Notes in your bulletin if you want to follow along. We're in 2 Samuel 24. Verses will be on the screen in the ESV. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, I want to warn you, there are a lot of unanswered questions in this text. So spoiler alert, you're going to leave today unsatisfied. Let's just get that out on on the table. For starters, why is God angry at Israel here? Well, the text doesn't tell us. Now, if you've been tracking with us on our story, we know Israel's full of knuckleheads. So it is no surprise that they're up to something, uh, just like we are today. But the text, it, it doesn't tell us why. But here's what's important to keep in mind. Even though David is going to commit some of his own sins in this text, we're also seeing David being used as a go-between to intercede between Israel and their God, between their sins and and God's mercy. So keep that in mind. The second uh, part of this first verse, it says, he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So God incites David. This is a, this is a word picture in Hebrews, meaning to prick with a thorn. So he's prodding David. He's poking him. Go and number the people. That's what he's telling him to, to do. But then look at verse 2. It says, The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. Joab is the captain of his army. He says, Go take this census. But look at Joab's response. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? You see Joab pushing back against David. Are you sure you, if, if you're questioning the king, you better have a good reason. And, and, and Joab's saying, let's think about this, king. But David's response, the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. David says, I'm the king, go do it. But then skip down to verse 10. This is where it gets really bizarre. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, after the census had been taken. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, wait a second. Didn't we just read God incited David against Israel? He said, you go count. David goes and counts. Isn't that obedience? And then David comes to God and says, I've sinned in counting. What do we do with this? I don't know about you, but I got, I got at least two questions coming out of what we've just read. The first one is, why is taking a census wrong? 
Maybe you're confused like this little guy. Why was it sinful for David to count the people? If you look in the Old Testament, censuses were taken all the time amongst the people of Israel. There's actually an entire book of the Bible dedicated to counting them. It's called Numbers. Hello, right? Like, so we see this happening. But why was it wrong here? Well, the text, again, it doesn't tell us, but we can search for some clues. First of all, it could have been that it was done illegally. In Exodus 30, it says, when you take a census of the people, you need to take this poll tax. It was a tax taken. Each person would pony up half a shekel and give it to the tabernacle. It was a way of collecting some tabernacle tax. Maybe David didn't collect that tax. Again, definitely doesn't say that in the text, and it doesn't really imply that that's what's going on. Maybe it's an issue of motive. Like we said, it's, when we count people here at the church, it's, it can be the why, not just the the what? So let's look at this. Who, who is David counting? Look at verse 9. Jacob gave, Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the kings of, in Israel. There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were, were 500,000. So who is he counting in particular? He's counting the men who could fight, right? Those who would be eligible to be in the, in the army or are in the army. But again, this isn't inherently evil. You go back to Numbers chapter 26, and God tells Moses and Aaron to count specifically those who were army qualified. So perhaps here, this is, this is not the what, but the why. What is David's motivation? Perhaps, perhaps David is saying, check out my army muscles. L- look at my kingdom. Look what I have built and there's, there's a hint in the text. Look at back in verse 3. We read it. Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord my king, the king, my Lord the king, still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? He says, your army could be a hundred times as big as it is, but why are you taking delight in that? Are you finding that as your source of validation as a king and how big your army is? God could blow Peninsula Grace up. We could be way bigger than Bible Chapel. We could be bigger than Change Point. (laughs) But he says, why delight in this thing? Is that what it's about? That my church is bigger than yours? I don't think so, right? We see that perhaps, perhaps, David is trusting in the might of his army instead of the might of his God. We sing the song here, right? Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our... Okay, we sing this song, you guys. I want to be a worship leader so bad. Verse 4, look at what it says. The king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So here you have not just Joab... But all the commanders coming to David and saying, don't do this. If you have a bunch of well-experienced, wise people in your life saying, don't do this, and you still want to do it, you're probably in the wrong. And what a call to us, what what a reminder to, to listen, ask and listen to the advice of godly men and women around us. We're not an island. We're not doing this thing on our own. But at the end of the day, God doesn't tell us why it's wrong. He just looks at us and he goes, nanya, right? That's what he says in the message. I don't know about the ESV. All we know here is that David is out of step with God's will. But here's the harder question. Here's the harder question. If it's wrong, 
why would God tell him to do it? If this was sin, is God making David sin here? I mean, look at verse 1. The Lord, he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Is God telling David to do something sinful? Is that even a thing? To make it even trickier, there's a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21 that tells us the same story with a few different details, and the first one is very, very significant. Look at verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, wait a minute. Is it God telling him to go take the numbers, or is it Satan? Well, apparently, according to this text, yes. We see that both are going on here. Do you remember in Job, what happened when Job's friends came to him? All the terrible things that had happened to Job, and they go, Job, you clearly did something wrong, man. There's no way God, God has to be punishing you. But what does he not, what did his friends not know? They hadn't read Job chapter 1 like we have. They didn't pull the curtain back and see that God and, and Satan are up in heaven, and God's saying, Satan's saying, I want to do this, I want to do this thing to Job, and, and, and God lets him do that thing. Is this God allowing Satan to do this? Is it telling him, we, again, above our pay grade, we're not told here. We know some things of our God in Scripture. We know that there is no evil in him, Psalm 92. We know that he does not tempt people himself, James 1.13. We know that God is good, right? He always does what's right. But we bump up into this space where we just have to say that we don't know what God is doing. But remember Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, whether it's Satan, whether it's our own evil hearts, it says you meant it for evil, but I, as sovereign God, meant it for good. I'm using you, I'm working in spite of you, and it all will go according to my plan. This is one of those spaces where we have to let God be God. If I walked off the stage and we're beginning worship and, and I come over to Jeff and I just two-hand shove him in the chest, send him back four rows flying because, you know, I'm pretty yoked. What is Jeff going to think about what I... Is he going to think I'm a nice person, that that was a nice act? No. He's going to look at me like, yo, bro, come at me and we're going to start... But what if all of a sudden there's like this car that comes zooming through and what he sees is that had I not shoved him out of the way, he would have been hit by that car. Now, why is there a car driving through our gym? I don't know. Don't, just stay with me here. He, he, he at first thought me cruel, but Jeff didn't see what I saw, did he? It, it would change his perspective. There are many times God is working in our life, and we may go, how could a good God allow this to happen? Here we see God doing something with David, and we're not told exactly why or exactly what's up here. And we just have to accept that as his created beings. And there are spaces in our lives where we go, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know why he shoved me. I don't know why this is happening to me or my family. But I have to let God be God in this. What we do here is see is Satan is involved again. And David again is succumbing to temptation. Again, a taking king. He takes a census of the people. And, and maybe for the record, maybe God told him to do it. And then he did it for the wrong reason. You know, we, we, again, we, we don't know. But again, what we see is a repentant David when he's confronted with his sin. The second thing we see is a convicted king and a just God. A convicted king and a just God. Verse 10, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. For the sixth time in recorded history for David, we see the words, I have sinned. What we see very clearly in the life of David, we see this last month, David is anything but a perfect man, father, or king. But what he is, is a repentant, contrite 
sinner when confronted with the word of God. Verse 11, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. He's going to give him three options as punishment for his sin, and I think ultimately for Israel's sin as well. Now it's interesting, you go back to Deuteronomy 28, when God says, if you bless me, here's what's going to happen. If you disobey me, here's what's going to happen. And he says, if you break my law, if you violate the covenant I'm making with you, there'll be three different punishments. And the punishments we're about to see are those three that he had laid out. Once again, seeing God being true to his word. He told them what the consequences would be. And here they are. God came to David, told him, and Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be for three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David has three options. He can go three years with famine in the country, three, three months of war, or three days of pestilence. It says there was a plague that would come upon them. And here's David's response. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. He says, I, I don't want the war option. I don't want to be at the hands of men. I've seen what that looks like. I want to be in the hands of my God. And so he chooses the three days of, of pestilence. Verse 15, the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And again, we don't want to rush past this. In the course of three days, 70,000 Israelites die. Those are numbers we can't even compute. That's more than the population of our entire peninsula. Sin has grave and deathly consequences. But then we see the mercy of God, verse 16, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. Here's the capital. Here's where the, the hub of the, 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 the whole entire country is David and his family. His hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So as he's about to take out Jerusalem, God says stop at a very important strategic site as we'll see here in a moment. And now we see David interceding for the people in verse 17. David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David again intercedes for the people. He goes, I'm the one that sinned, not them. Don't strike them anymore. Take it out on me and my family. His family's like, hey, <laughs> why are you including us in this? But, but what is, remember, what does David not know back in verse 1? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is not just for David's sin, but also for the sin of the people. And what we see from our God is he's a just God who will never punish, who will never do something that is wrong and not deserved, even when we can't make sense of all of it. Last point. We see a worshipful king and a merciful God. A worshipful king and a merciful God. Here, even here, David, God does not abandon his people. He does not abandon David, but he sends he sends another prophet, communicates with David, just like he tells us everything we need to know. Verse 18, Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Now, he tells him to build this altar. And at first, it seems like a really random place. 
And for the record, right now, the tabernacle is up in Gibeon. That's the place at the tabernacle where the Israelites were supposed to worship and sacrifice. So there is something very significant going on here. If David, God tells David, worship here, not up at the tabernacle. So we've got to pay attention as we see that. And where does he say to do it? The threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So the word is pronounced Arana, as you've been reading it. Um, so I, I told the first service to help think of it this way. Uh, a Blair and Arana Martin. Okay, if that, if that helps you connect the dots there. Arana, the Jebusite. Now, the Jebusites lived uh, before, they were a Canaanite people who were driven out of the land when Israel came. And specifically, they lived in what is now Jerusalem. So that's why Arana, the Jebusite, gives you a hint that they're in Jerusalem, somebody who had not been driven away from Jerusalem. And it says it's on his threshing floor. And this threshing floor was kind of this large, flat, bedrock surface and what they would do here is, well, it says they would thresh. And that means that they would separate the wheat from the chaff. Get the wheat. Okay, they keep the wheat, get rid of the chaff. This is back when gluten was still popular. So today we would get rid of the wheat and keep the chaff. I don't know. But we, we see this at an elevated place high up on a mountain. And the reason it was high is so the wind could blow away the chaff. Get rid of it. And here's what's, man, this is so cool. This spot is the perfect strategic spot for what God is about to do in David and show his people. Check this out. We're looking back and looking forward. Remember, this is all a story that fits together. And this high place in Jerusalem, where they are is actually Mount Moriah. And if you dial back into Genesis chapter 22, what's an important story that happens on Mount Moriah? Mount Moriah. This is the very spot where Abraham was about to sacrifice his own son, and here we are in this kind of climax of a movie scene. we got Abraham with his knife over his own son to kill him. And, and God intervenes in the same way. What do we see in verse 16? When the angel stretched out his hand to, toward Jerusalem to destroy it. Here's this key moment back then and right now. Where the covenant promise is on the line if God does not mercifully reverse this command. If he kills Isaac, Isaac is the one through the nation of Israel is going to come. That's what God already promised him. And they're going to bless everybody. The deliverer will come from Israel. He's going to kill the promised one. And here, if, if God wipes out Jerusalem, David and all of his kings, he's going back on that 2 Samuel 7 promise for an eternal king to come and the Messiah to be through the line of David. But in this moment, in both scenes, in God's mercy, he says, stop, don't do it. And in both scenes, he provides a sacrifice because death is necessary for sin. For Isaac, he provides a ram. And here at this spot of the threshing floor, David provides the sacrifice himself. This is looking back. This is also looking forward because the very ground, and he can't write this stuff, the very ground that David's standing on becomes the future site of the temple. This is where God is going to build his temple through Solomon, as he had promised. It says this in 2 Chronicles 3. Though Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. This is exactly where it is. Now, here it says Ornon. Our passage said Arana. It's sort of like, you know, you got like Charles and Chuck or it's really the same name in Hebrew. This is, this is still ultimately the same root name for, for the Hebrew here. Um, and so what happens here is God spares David and keeps this promise to build the temple right here. And just like God is doing on the threshing floor in this chapter, he's going to do the same thing in this space that they call the temple. This is where God would forgive and cover sin, removing its deadly consequences 
And how does he do it? He can only do it when the cost of a worshipful sacrifice is given by the priest on behalf of the people. So the king comes to Arana, minding his own business, threshing on the floor. And Arana, he says, I want to buy your threshing floor from you. And here's Arana's response. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. Apparently, Arana speaks in third person, so I don't know what's up with that. But he also says, Lord, king, you don't, you don't buy nothing from me. I'm giving this to you for free 99. It is a gift to my king. But look at David's response here. David said to Arana, no, I, but I will buy it from you for a price. And here's my favorite line in the story. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David says, I'm going to buy this thing. It's got to cost me something. David Guzik says it this way, had Arana's noble offer been accepted, it would have been Arana's sacrifice, not David's. If it would have been him giving up his threshing floor, who made the sacrifice here? David didn't. It cost nothing to David. And David said, I can't do that. You can't pay for, for my sin. You can't take my place in this. And here we see David. You see God working in his heart. The taking king, just like Saul, says, I'm not going to take this from you. I'm going to give to my giving God. And then we see here, he, he offers the, the right sacrifice, must be the right sacrifice. David there built it there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Now, we don't want to overshadow that. I mean, of course, this is, the peasants are rejoicing as the, as the land is, is being removed, the plague's being removed from the land. But there's something deeper here that's going on on this threshing floor that I think we need to have eyes to see. I think a lot of times in our Christian subculture, we can reduce God to this sort of heavy-handed, um, out-of-control, raging tyrant that just wants to smash sinners. Like, he's just playing spiritual whack-a-mole with us. He's like, you disobeyed, and you disobeyed, and you disobeyed, right? He's just kind of coming after us, and he's just this bloodthirsty God that's got to throw lightning bolts, and so we got to throw the sacrificial lamb in our place, or Jesus comes diving in front of us. He's like, I just got to Hulk smash something, and I'm going to kill that instead of you. Now, we know there's substitutionary atonement. I'm not speaking against that, but there's something deeper going on in this, in this spot. You see, the temple was not ultimately just about God not smashing sinners, the temple was this unique place that God had designated where, where he and humanity would meet, where, where, where heaven and earth would interlock. And it was on the sacrificial altar in the temple. This is where it all went down. What is this ultimately about? It's about a relationship with God. And yes, sin has to be removed. It has to be taken care of. But it's removed so that we can have a relationship with God. Ultimately, this whole thing is not about what we're saved from. It's what we're saved to. We're saved from sin so that we can enter into the delight of our Heavenly Father. And this is exactly what we see here. The same place where the Lord relents, pulls back his hand, is the same spot where he wants to meet David. Now here's the cool thing. Where does the temple find its ultimate fulfillment? It's not in a building. We don't come to this gym hoping that God will come into this building. The temple ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. That he's the touch point of heaven and earth between God and man. His sacrifice was that space. 
And as the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus indwells us, you know what we're called in 1 Corinthians? That we are the temple. We, his people, are now the meeting point of God and man. See, David, we said he's called a man after God's own heart. And once again, we know this is not because he was without sin. He's a human just like the rest of us. But what we see in David's life, Soren Kierkegaard said purity of heart is to will one thing. And at the end of the day, there was one thing that David continually pursued after, and it was God's own heart. My favorite thing that David ever wrote comes from Psalm 27. He says, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the one thing I seek the most, this is it. This is the supreme motivation of my life. And hear what it is. It says, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. Why? Because that's where God is. And he says, I know I've blown it. I know I'm a sinner. All I want is to know my God, to delight in who my God is, to be where my God is. And in this space, it was in the temple. What's a, there's a principle here. The principle is that cost shows worth. Cost shows worth. In fact, this is why we call it worship. It comes from the root worthship. So how much does something mean to you? Well, it's, it's what you're willing to pay for it. If I came up to one of you and offered you this piece of paper, say, how much would you give me for this paper? You're like, dude, it's a piece of paper. It's got my sermon notes on it. Anybody? It's, he said, no, I'll give you a penny. I don't know. Like, I don't care. I don't care about this paper. But if I came up to you and said, hey, I, I, how about my iPhone? How much would you pay? For? Hopefully you'd pay more for my iPhone than my, it's an XR. Doesn't have the home button. Come on. What, how, how much you value something is shown in how much you will pay for it. And this takes us to 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? We're the temple now. He says, you don't belong to yourself. You're not your own anymore. And here's why. He says, for God bought you with a high price. How much does God worth, how much are you worth to God? What, what does your creator think about you? His, your worth to him is indicated in the cost that he was willing to pay to have a relationship with you again. And what was that cost? It was his one and only son. That he was willing to give up the thing that was most valuable to him in all the universe so that he could have a relationship with us. Let that sink in for a moment. How much were we worth to Jesus? His own life. He put his own life up there on Calvary's cross so that we could enter into this space, this meeting place with God and man. So out of that, we say, well, how much is our God worth to us? What's he worth to us? And, and this landing point of this, this little verse here, it says, so you must honor God with your body. What's he worth to us? Well, what's the cost we're willing to pay? Are we willing to give up all of us to him? Now, we're not doing that to earn our salvation. This is those who have already been bought with a price, who already belong to him. This is the response of the heart that's been changed. Say, God, this is how much you are worth to me. You can have it all. Here's my body. Here's my time. Here's everything. It's yours. The conclusion here is honor God with your body to give to God what he has given to you. We're just, we're just giving it back. And, and, I, and I love this. Think about this. I mean, let's, let's just take this practical. How do, we, how do we give, how do we honor, how do we show worth to God with our bodies? So let's just think about our human body for a second. There's an amazing human body right there. That was pre-marriage because I don't have any hair. Remember we talked about the compromise last week? 
So how do we use our, our body for him? Well, think about our hands. Are my hands giving or are they taking? Am I one who is generously giving or am I fearfully and selfishly taking? Are my hands one that, ones that touch lovingly and givingly or do they take abusively? What about, my, what about my eyes? What am I looking at? How do I see people? Do I see them as my God sees them? Or do I see them as competition? Maybe I'm looking down at people or looking up at people. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm seeing them as objects through, through the eyes of lust and pornography. How, how do I see Do I see them as ones that are fearfully, wonderfully made in his image? Do I see people as God sees people to love them, be willing to give up our lives for them? What about our mouths? This is my, this is my one. <laughs> Uh, are we using our mouths to build up or to tear down? Are we using our mouths to talk ourselves up or to gush about our Savior? And what are we using our what are we putting in our bodies through our mouths? This is a temple we're called to, to steward. What, what about our ears? And we long to hear from our God. Are we listening to His voice through His Word and His Spirit? And are we listening to others? Let me tell you, one of the best ways to love somebody is to close this and open these. To not just listen, but hear people, where they're at, what they're walking through. Pay attention and listen. And then finally, our feet. Are, are, I mean, are we going to run after our God and what he's calling us into and go? Where, how beautiful are the feet to bring the good news of peace? This last week, God was telling Jill and I to, to go into our neighborhood brand new neighborhood we just moved into in July. He says, uh, go into all the neighborhood and, and, and make disciples with your snickerdoodles. <laughs> and so we did. We walked door to door and we were handing out cookies. Hi, we're Jill and Justin. And I'll tell you what, it's a, it's a scary thing. Even for an extrovert and somebody who talks in front of people all the time, it was a terrifying thing to go over next door and ring the doorbell. What did, I didn't think we're crazy. Especially in 2019, I heard a comedian joking recently about the doorbell today. Like it used to be, hey, we have company. Oh, there they are. Today, you hear a doorbell. It's like, what's that? What are we, kids, get behind the couch, right? If that's not the UPS guy, we're in trouble, right? I mean, that's, that's what we're thinking. So, so here we walk over, ding dong, please don't shoot us, right? That's, and the first door, we, we, we knock our next door neighbors. Come on in, have a beer, I won't tell you what we did. It's between us and the Lord. And they go, man, we're so glad you came over. And we start having this conversation. They're not, they don't know the Lord. They're not believers. And they say, hey, why don't you come over for dinner next week when I get back home from work? Striking up a relationship. Because we were just willing to say, all right, we'll go take these snickerdoodles next door and see what happens. Are we will- is this, this is all about how much our God is worth to us. Are we willing to go where he says to go, to say what he says to say, to do what he says to do, giving our bodies to him, which is a much better place for them to be than in the clutches of our own selfishness? David was called a man after God's own heart. Here here we see his motivations were the ones that were wrong. The, The why was wrong, not the what necessarily. And we see God altering that, bringing him back to the space where he runs after his God. So let me ask you, what's the supreme motivation in your life? Can we say what David says? The one thing I ask of, Lord, the the thing I seek the most, what is your supreme motivation in your life? What drives you to get out of bed in the morning? Why do you make the decisions you make? That's much more important than the things you're doing. You can do things in the flesh and you can do things in the spirit. What is our motivation? 
And can we say with David, here's what I want, God. I want to be with you. I want to live in your house. I want to delight in your perfections and meditate in his temple. And that doesn't mean we got to get a plane ticket over to Jerusalem and find the temple. It's right there. It's right here in this space. In us is Christ and the ability to fellowship with our God. What an amazing privilege to delight in him and invite others to delight in that too. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that the example we see here the son of David, who saves his people at very great and personal cost to himself. We see a king who gives his all so that he and his people could be saved from this calamity and ushered into relationship with you. And Father, this points us to forward to the true David, the true son of Israel, who not for his own sins, but only for the sins of the people, that he saved us with the great and personal cost of giving up himself so that we might have a relationship with you. And Father, we see that the priest and king here, the, the Jesus who did this for us, and, and I know, I confess to you, most days, the supreme motivation in my life is not to know you. And it's to puff up myself, it's to protect myself. I go to great lengths to look out for number one. But the irony, Father, when we try to save our lives, that's where we lose it. It's only when we give it to you that we find it. What a better way to be motivated by the Holy Spirit in us to delight in your presence. And Father, as we become a people who delight in you, I pray that you would change our hearts, that we would see that, that you are the one that we're called to rejoice in. And as we do that, that, the overflow of our hearts will be ones that say, here's my life, here's my hands, here's my eyes, here my feet, here my ears. God, what would you have me do? How would you have me live? And we go out in this world and invite people into delighting in our King. But Lord, we see the sin and brokenness in David and his family. We see that same sin and brokenness in this space. And we all need changed hearts. That's why that high priest came, the King, gave us his own life to win us back into the space, the temple, the meeting place with God right here in our own bodies. And we could walk with you, become like you, and love this world the way that you loved us. You're worth everything to us, God. May we have eyes to see that and lives to show that. It's all in your sacrificial, priestly, kingly, beautiful, wonderful, powerful name that we pray. Amen.